This is the official Sasta podcast brought to you by me, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings on Snapchat, and the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin, at Jason LK on Twitter. Always some entertaining tweets for sure from Jason. But to the show today, and I'm thrilled to welcome May Habib to the show today. Now, May is the founder and CEO at Cordoba, the best platform for building truly localized products, working with over 650 linguists in 30 countries. We do also want to say a massive congratulations to May for recently raising a fantastic Series A with the likes of Upfront Ventures and Rincon Partners leading the round. Prior to founding Cordoba, May was director of M&A at Mubadala, an investment banker at Lehman Brothers and Barclays in New York. And it's not just us that love May. May's also been named to the 30 Under 30 and CEO of the Year Award. I do also want to say a big thank you to Jason Lemkin for the intro to May today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But enough of this terrible British accent, so I'm now delighted to hand over to May Habib, founder and CEO at Cordoba. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. May, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to Jason Lemkin at Sasta for the intro. But thank you so much for joining me today, May. Thank you. It's so nice to be here, Harry. Love Jason and everything that you guys do. So it's been um, a real resource for me on this journey. So super happy and thrilled to be here. Well, thank you so much. But I'd love to get started today with a little about you. And although North Lebanon is a hotspot for talent, (laughs) I'm sure. Right. (laughs) How did you make your way from North Lebanon to the world of SaaS and come to be founder of Cordoba? That's hilarious. We're going way, way back. My, uh, My family immigrated to Canada in the early 90s actually. Uh, The war of the 70s and 80s had been pretty terrible. And Canada had a great refugee program like they do now. You know, this is a part of what it means to be Canadian. We didn't have a crazy, you know, crossing of the border story or anything like that, like the refugees of of now. The experience certainly gives me a huge amount of empathy for what's going on today. Career-wise, funny me, working at Cordoba now seems almost inevitable when you think about kind of the dots. But I grew up in a really entrepreneurial family. My parents had no qualms on child labor and they started a machine tool company in Windsor and I spent all my weekends there. I spent all of my after school time there starting when I was like eight and me and my brothers went from the oldest of eight children and me and my brothers went from a dollar a day to a dollar an hour to in high school I actually saved more money in high school than I did in my first year of banking. Wow. So yeah it was it was great. It was there was no limit to the responsibility my dad would give me if I was up for it. And so that's definitely shaped who I am and and how I run Cordoba, I think. I definitely think my colleagues would think I put them in the deep end too often, but uh, that definitely comes from having grown up that way. And so what was the genesis moment for Cordoba? What was the founding story of that? Yeah, so it was a little circular. I, I studied economics at Harvard and then I joined Lehman's tech banking group. Uh, I had a great mentor there who's still a really good friend, an Australian guy. And basically month four, he put me on a plane to San Francisco and I was helping write a company's S1. And I've basically been hooked on tech ever since. And I knew that I would start a company at some point. The idea for Cordoba came when I was working for a sovereign wealth fund. We were based in Dubai, but investing in emerging markets and being in tech and and being in emerging markets, uh, the question that was really in my face all the time was, how can we make it exponentially easier for companies uh, to succeed globally, to succeed in markets where they didn't know the culture, didn't know the language? And language is a huge part of it, but for large companies, it's also about managing the complexity of messaging and workflows and content creation and the technical problem of managing software and funnels that need to work in a lot of different places for a lot of different users. 
users. And so the ideas that became Cordoba really came out of that experience. Absolutely. I, I do want to start this day with a little bit about your incredible MRR growth. Now, quadrupling MRR since a year ago through, as you said, turning your SDRs into the smartest people in the space on our customers' problems. Firstly, a massive congratulations on the MRR growth. Thank you. To me about this and the practices used to make this change. This is really now the heart of how our pipeline grows is our SDRs and, and the intelligence they bring to the equation. The problems that our customer face, if you think about it, is, is quite immense. So I'm a product manager at Visa or at Marriott, and I need to figure out how to change a development content process that now has to accommodate for 15 new countries. So on the one hand, I've got people in these countries telling me that they need more input into what makes it into their markets because they're the ones that have to make it successful. And then on the other, I've got a dev team that is trying to deploy as fast as humanly possible, and they're not going to pause to get input from people they don't know and languages they don't speak, faceless, nameless. And this problem looks different depending on who we're talking to in this equation. So the product manager and the engineer and the marketer all have different pain points and they're all reached by us via different value propositions. And the problem is also going to look different depending on what platform they're trying to be successful on. Is it mobile? Is it web? Is it whatever? The tech stack they're on, how penetrated they are already on and are in a market, the maturity of the product or the funnel. And so these are very sophisticated people we sell to. They have very sophisticated problems. They've had it up to here with vendors trying to sell them things. And that SDR is the first introduction to Cordoba and our solution. So our guys and girls have to be super sharp and insightful to be able to add value from the first conversation. And that wasn't obvious to us right away, given some of the conventional wisdom. Can I be really uh, basic and, and maybe annoying yeah. and ask, what does super sharp and insightful mean? Is that offering yeah. suggestions and advice up front? And then is there a limit to how much value you provide pre-sale? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good point. How much of the value do we bring in in this approach before they've really qualified themselves? We don't reach out to people unless they're hyper-qualified. And so there's so much information that we can glean about a prospect uh, even before we have that conversation. Everything I just talked about, so whether they sit on the on the PM side of the house or the engineering side of the house or the marketing side of the house, whether they're international yet or not, where they are in their maturity, how much market penetration do they already have, what is their tech stack? This is all information we actually already have. Somebody doing the right amount of research can find that out. So our challenge was how do we scale that research? And so how do we turn something that if you do it as a one-off would have taken three hours into something that is already done for you? And so the fact that they're pre-qualified tells me that I'm allowed to let our SDR spend time in giving value to the customer. And to answer your question directly, being super smart means immediately understanding where the pain point potentially is and probing for that and then offering up solutions. And, you know, it's I've probably tried nine of the 10 things to improve a flow or a process. And the kind of customers we talk to, they're already international to an extent. And so a lot of what they are doing to solve this problem is built in-house, kind of duct taped together over a couple of decades. And if they're green field and, and startups who have an approach for those folks as well. And, you know, it tends to be less painful for them on the change management side, but it's the value that we bring enabling customers to go 
from this antiquated process into something that is really revolutionary in how much faster it allows them to uh, execute in, in new markets. I'm very interested, though, because you talked there about kind of optimizing the SDR role. And I often yeah. hear about some quote unquote best practices on SDR appointment setting. So I'm intrigued what best practices, so to speak, did you follow that potentially really damaged you? Yeah, well, thankfully, we, we pivoted really quickly and really tried to write our own playbook on this. But I think I took, and this is you know my first time trying to sell software, I took the SDRs at the, as the bottom of the pyramid quite too literally. So we focused on dials, quantifying the output, rather than developing messaging that worked. And then we did develop the messaging. That's always been part of the framework. But it still wasn't, it wasn't going to be two bullet points that was going to get a meeting. It was call paths and even email paths that needed to inspire the prospect that we knew what they were doing and that we could make it much better. So unless you're literally getting somebody the minute they come out of a exec retreat where they decided to put internationalization on next quarter's roadmap, few truly qualified people are going to say after one email, yes, I certainly am going to take that demo with your product specialist Thursday at 9 a.m. Eastern. That's not going to happen. So it's a conversation. It's over the phone. It's over emails, over a few weeks. And so the SDRs needed to understand the problem that our customer faced deeply or else they were running to an AE or the customer success team or the product team every time there was a question that they couldn't answer rather than building an arsenal and a deeper framework of how to engage the prospects and, and book the meeting. So, so that was different than kind of the typical approach to this. I'm very interested. You said there about kind of the personalization of the SDR to the client themselves and kind of getting on emails and calls with them. One very uh, strange aside, but do you ever find videos better for conversion? So uh, we love GIFs and we won't do like rant. So we'll send videos of conversion dense, like our data scientists talking about how we use machine learning in the product and how it can accelerate adoption of your own product in a new market. We'll condense that hour long talk. And at the beginning, we used to send like, oh, look how amazing it is. You know, we got a speaker at like Spark Summit, like us, and we'd send the 20 minute clip. No, we now will, when we send video, we will actually invest. And we've got an awesome marketing director, Jimmy, who's just learned how to be a video director. And so he will condense these into a minute or two minutes that is really truly the highlights of the talk. He'll add overlays and kind of bullet takeaways from it. So I really love video, but it needs to be customized to that sequence and and that prospect. And then when we do do things that are much shorter than that, we use GIFs. And it's usually, here's how our product would work on your own content. So imagine what this could look like if, you know, it was adopted. No, that absolutely makes sense. I do want to remain on the SDR though and a final question on the SDR business how how fundamental has the differentiation been between SDRs and AEs for you in particular you know when uh, when the appointment setting wasn't working at the beginning before we changed the model I had adopted the stance of look top of the sales funnel is absolutely crucial we need our best people prospecting the engineer should be freaking prospecting the whole company should prospect (laughs) so given though now how we've scaled the model I definitely don't want our AEs prospecting so at the same time, it's certainly true, I think, that an AE who can't ask for a meeting also can't ask for the money. So I'd never hire an AE who didn't love prospecting or asking for time or was super energetic about booking meetings himself or herself. I think that's really indicative of how confident they'll be in asking for the sale because it only gets harder in that pipeline. Asking for the meeting 
isn't easy either. Um, and getting the meeting certainly isn't easy, but I, I think now I'm more convinced on the differentiation because I've seen how our new SDR playbook has scaled. It actually just happened yesterday that I saw one of our AEs having done like a kind of like a mini SDR campaign. And I was like, no, this shouldn't be to five people or 50 people. It should be to freaking 500 people. And you're now going to get, you know, outbound resources to help you scale that because that's a great message, but more people need to hear it. And so AEs are just always going to think a little bit more narrowly because they don't have the tool set or the skill set to do, you know, what we call outbound ops that the SDRs run. You said about scaling the prospecting there. You have a very yeah. unique and strategic way almost to approach scaling prospecting. How does this play out for you? I think this is where it really helps to have a really commercial co-founder slash CTO. And so, you know, he saw us struggling kind of in between a, a clear bit, a Salesforce and an outbound in Google Sheets. And he was like, why are you guys doing this? Let me just build you a database. And we taught SDRs how to use SQL and they literally run queries and build. We've basically built our own flow. They write web scrapers that take any of the proxy data that we need to get on folks and add that and merge it into the, the database. And then when they want to run campaigns, they put in the parameters, they export the data, they write messaging copy that's got that has merge tags based on that data. And that's how we run campaigns now. But it's, you know, when we do use other tools, we're using them to press send essentially. No, absolutely. You said about running campaigns. Uh, you run campaigns, but the campaigns in your customer profile has always been enterprise uh, and always enterprise ready from day one. In an age where I see most SaaS founders attacking the SMB market first before potentially moving upstream gradually. What's yeah. your take on this? Uh, where are the right places to start? And and kind of any misconceptions in today's SaaS world? Yeah, I, I think it does depend on the space. Uh, but for us, selling into product and marketing with engineers being sometimes even on the very first call and having a huge veto, it just made so much sense for us to go art market right away. So um, when we first launched, we were trying to sell this to mobile developers, actually, as an SDK. It was totally uh, the wrong approach. And for us, we realized that you know spending a lot of time uh, with an enterprise customer to really make sure the product worked for them resulted in a product that was really good for other enterprise customers as well. And so it didn't make sense for us to try to sell this at 500 bucks a month when we were creating an immense amount of value as a result of the product that we built. But definitely not for everybody because when you show up at a Visa or a Marriott and you don't have the technical resources you know, to explain and execute what it is that you talk about, then you know they're not going to meet with you again. And so that was really important that we did show up and we showed up with the A-team always, the A-team technically. And there you know, really helps to have the right co-founder and the right type of engineering talent. Our engineers know who our customers are. They know who's the most active. When they see tickets around customer feature requests, like they, I mean, because engineers run the roadmap, they themselves know to prioritize the customers who pay us the most. And so it is just a much more commercially minded product operation than I see a lot of Valley companies run. And I think part of that is that, you know, we were not born in the Valley. And so there's a little bit, we, we, we don't have to follow those rules. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm very interested though, because often uh, I see and I speak to SaaS founders and I say, why aren't you going enterprise? And they say, well, the sales cycles are so long and 
inconsistent that it means mm. fundraising and kind of projecting runway very difficult when it is such long sales cycles i'm intrigued mm. how do you think about the the kind of conjunction of sales cycles and runway and kind of having enough runway and how do you balance the two you know so i, I hear them say that but i love me a two-year contract cash up front and so yeah okay the sales cycle is longer but you're getting a lot more cash to actually run your business uh, when you close one of those deals. And so we do two, three-year contract. We have a five-year contract. So I definitely hear that complaint. But if you're anyway going to put in the, the time and the energy, I mean, we work till midnight most days, then wouldn't you rather be positioning and trying to sell your product to somebody who's really going to get a ton of value out of it? And that's where it comes from. And you can only charge you know, mid-market and enterprise type of SaaS fees when you're adding a tremendous amount of value and you're literally saving thousands of engineering hours, thousands of product hours and deployed in the right face in the right company. A lot of SaaS products have that potential. And so, you know, it does come down to the personalities of people too. I love talking to people. I really like selling. I love that, you know, our first 20 customers have my WhatsApp and my Skype and these relationships become much deeper than um, vendor customer because they understand that they're also helping you build something and they're putting a lot of faith and a lot of trust that this thing that they've bought is going to help them get promoted. I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but certainly not going to get them fired. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do have one final question for the quick fire, and it's often for, yeah. for those founders that do take the jump into enterprise first. They often say to me, oh, I'm just so nervous about, about the kind of price that we do a dance around in the meeting, and then it comes to the pricing discussion. And often when selling to enterprise, obviously, it's a much higher ACV. What advice and tips would you have in terms of gaining the courage, confidence, and almost kind of uh, formulating that discussion and then kind of presenting the, the higher ACV and having the confidence to do so? It's, I wish I could be like this fountain of advice. I myself deal with this every day. I flew down to LA uh, to take a prospect who's very deep in our funnel out to dinner and my VP of sales texted me after and she was like, you know, so how'd it go? Did he sign? And I was like, oh, actually, we didn't talk about the, the contract. You know, he talked about his kids in Europe and, and she was like, what? So, you know, there's, I'm still, I'd much rather talk about the product, the problem, the roadmap than ask for, for the money. You need to know where your weaknesses are. And you know, if that is the case, then you definitely need to make sure that there are people on the team who got that experience and got that confidence. But, you know, part of it for me also was I knew that she was there to ask for the money and I knew what my role was as the CEO at dinner that night. And so there's also that self-awareness and the understanding that everyone's time is precious and they would not be across the table from you. They would not have pulled in their VP of Eng. They would not be on the third meeting if they didn't think there was value here. And so you need to own up to it. You need to own up that you, you're bringing something of value to the table. You're going to make their life easier. And guess what? You're working 20 hours a day to continue to invest in this product. It's only going to get better for them from day one. And guess what? They're not paying you more day 100 than day one, but you're working harder and the product is better day 100 than day one. So I think so many founders uh, are putting their hearts and souls into products and you know not necessarily standing behind that. So that is uh, hopefully something that maybe gives them some confidence. Absolutely. You go, May. I'm thinking uh, inspirational speakers part of the um, I do want to dive into a quick fire that we call uh, the 60 second saster. So I say okay. a statement and 60 seconds per answer. Ready? Got it. So what do you believe that most around you do not? I think I 
believe that any human can learn how to do something really hard. Mm -hmm. Any human can learn how to do something really hard. That the ceilings people put on themselves are not their true ceilings. And I push and challenge people at work uh, on on this point. And I think they end up surprising themselves. And I, I surprise myself also. There's always more pain to go through. And then you're like, yay, I got to the end of that. Woohoo. <laughs> My words, you really are an inspirational speaker. Um, that, that was very inspiring. Um, talk to me, the ho- transitioning from that inspiration to what's been the hardest moment of the entrepreneurial journey with Cordoba? Um, I think the hardest thing was when we, we started the company in Dubai, my co-founder and I, I think there was, you know, about a year into that, we said, there's no way we can keep building this product without being on site with customers and, and building it with the kind of customers that we want. And so we have to move. And at that point, we had raised angel money from some great funds and um, some, some great entrepreneurs. And they weren't sure that we were going to make it in a completely new place that was very far away where we would really need to rewrite the terms, the structure, absolutely everything. So there was a really difficult period there. Uh, we moved anyway, and we just had to convince them over a few months. You know, this was not a journey we were going to do without them, but we had a lot of conviction. And now everyone is really happy, certainly, that we stuck to our guns. But I think that was probably the hardest thing that we went through. And then what's your favorite SaaS reading material? Rainy day, hot chocolate in hand. What SaaS material do you like to read? That's funny. I mean, obviously, everything that you and Jason do. Um, I also really like what Peter Kazanji is doing with the modern sales group email list. I, I learn a lot from those folks. Sometimes I'm like sitting in the bath and I'll just look up all the old emails and read what I've missed. But really the best reading, like true rainy day hot chocolate on those days, those are just too precious to spend that reading about work. And so I do like to read philosophy and history to get grounded and and manage my mind. I think when you face this type of grind, being able to do that is so important. I'm reading an awesome book by Stephen Greenblatt now, who's a humanist at Harvard called Swerve. And it's about Lucretius's epic poem and the Epicureans and just how it was found in the 14th century this classical Greek text on sex and love and food. It was amazing. Um, it's, it's really good. I can literally not put it down, which is crazy given the material, but highly recommend it. May that really is far too intellectual for us. We're more of... I'm sorry. Tom, Tom, Tom Tungas gets us going, but, um, <laughs> but let's, let's finish the quick fire on what do uh-huh. you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your journey with Cordoba? Okay, I think one would be Mark's Go High. So, you know, that would have saved us 18 months and, and the hardest pint point of the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial journey. Uh, I think we would have just right away gone enterprise, built this product with big customers, moved to the Valley. And then I think the second thing would be that this job actually gets harder, not easier. There was sort of this like fairy tale I had in my mind where, you know, just this is just the hardest six months and the next six months won't be as bad. You know, this will be a hard year and then the next year won't be as bad. But the challenges you face just get upgraded and they become more complex and the stakes are only getting higher. So I think if I had known that from the beginning, that would have saved me a lot of anxiety. I'm in a good place now, but it was definitely a journey inwards to get to that personal calm, even when everything around you is moving very fast. Incredibly I, reassuring to hear that it's, it's just yeah. a constant <laughs> battle uphill. Um, yeah, totally. totally. <laughs> but, but 
talking of uh, battles, uh, you have won the recent battle with fundraising, and I, we discussed fundraising and balancing that with sales cycles. You recently raised a fantastic round from some brilliant investors, and I yeah. want to talk about that because I know you got some advice during your Series A that was potentially rather jarring for you. I'm intrigued. What was that advice, and how did you respond to this? Well, it was definitely not upfront or Rincon, uh, who uh, the two firms that did our A, they're absolutely incredible. I feel so privileged and so lucky um, that I get to talk to these people every week and, and see them every month. They've been really amazing. And it's the, the whole partnership at the service of the company. It's awesome. But I think, you know, when we started when we started fundraising, some of the advice that I got that was like, hmm, interesting. We had uh, a couple of folks who I knew were trying to be really well-meaning, Harry. And this was, you know, set in the, the tone of a confidence aside, but it was, hey, don't even bother scheduling meetings with VCs who haven't written a check to a woman because it's going to be a waste of your time. And that's hard advice to hear just because there are so few women who have raised A's and B's in the SaaS enterprise space. And, you know, if I were to limit my pool to only people who had done that, that would be a very small, I I actually don't even know who'd be on that list right now. So that was difficult. I think one of the Rincon partners who I really do think is an incredible person, despite having put his foot in his mouth um, by saying that women should hide their, you know, online identities. This was also somebody who really pushed me to write our own SDR playbook, who was super in favor of the VP sale hire that I wanted to bring on, who is a a woman. Um, Our customer success team is led by a woman or two data scientists are women. And what he said came from a good place. And, you know, what these investors were saying came from a good place also. It's not helpful because there are not enough women. And so if we're only pattern matching and and going to the VCs who have pattern matched, A, I think those people are going to get great returns just because of, you know, the kind of people they attract, but there are just too few people who have invested in women. We need more VCs who invest in their first one. Now, I'm going to take a very kind of meta and philosophical view to, to this conversation and that aspect mm-hmm. in particular. Just being, mm-hmm. do you agree with Jessica Livingston's article in which she said about the power of silence in the way that, I'm not sure if you've read it, but she basically emphasised that through silence you can cause no offence. Would you agree with that in certain respects? So on the, on the one hand, I know I, I, I don't agree, but I really think back to you know how I reacted to that that conversation. And in a sense, it was, you know, polite silence. I think we really are conditioned to not offend. And I I think it's more feminine than masculine. But I'm trying to work on that. I'm trying to offend as often and as frequently as as possible now, Harry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you haven't offended me in the slightest, so uh, you're doing a terrible job with regards to that. But (laughs) I want to finish because I want to discuss before you've said that entrepreneurs who embrace fundraising enjoy it more. Talk to me, what other than cash uh, do you think can be gained from fundraising? What tips would you have for those entering VC meetings to really optimize and get the most from them? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I think for us, fundraising was awesome pipeline development. And every VC that we met with wanted to learn more, which was great for us. And that meant them introducing us to two or three companies that could give them fantastic feedback. And it was people in their portfolio, it was places they had worked before, it was people they knew who had encountered the problem of internationalization. And so for us, it was pipeline development. I did all those calls myself, for sure. And they wanted to learn more. And so your deck needs to be ready. The calendar needs to be clear. You really need to be able to do this and dedicate time to 
to it and your sales team needs to be ready. At that point, we only had the VP on board. And so, you know, she was the one who was following up, but it was great. We closed a couple deals from that. May, Jason told me it'd be a fantastic episode. Uh, I've more than <laughs> been blown away. Uh, you haven't offended me at all. Oh, great. I've so, <laughs> I've, so, I've so enjoyed chatting. So thank you so much. Likewise. Thanks so much, Harry. This was really fun. And I would like to say a big thank you to May for giving up her time today to come on the show. And again, thank you so much to Jason Lemkin for making the introduction to May, without which this episode would not have been possible. And if you love the show today and would like to see more from us, then you can follow the main man Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK. You can follow May on Twitter at May underscore Habib. Or you can follow me on Snapchat at HDebbings. As always, we so appreciate all your support and we cannot wait to bring you Monday's episode with former Relate IQ founder and now Excel partner Steve Lachlan.